Morning, church. If you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 2. I am so thankful for God's Word and for the way that He weaves His Word together and the way that uh, He's given you intentional shepherds to help bring together this cohesive worship gathering where you have this call to come and worship the Lamb who is holy and high and lifted up. And then in the reading of the law, we saw a God again who is holy and should be sanctified as holy by His people. And then as God would have it, and on purpose, we come to a passage that highlights the holiness and the majesty of a God who is both holy and compassionate. I'm excited to look at God's character and His ways with you this morning. I want to start by asking you a pretty frank question. I was just thinking about the best ways to to phrase this, and I want to know if you have lived in the vacuum of self-orientation this week, in the no-man's land of unbelief. This is so often where we live, where we are not needy or desperate enough to cry out and to call to God with a, with a groaning and an anguish of soul that actually leads to an intense prayerfulness. But we're too anxious or distracted or busy to actually see the wonders around us and to see the wonder of God in His world. We just have this low-grade fever that doesn't ache enough to call out to God, but also doesn't see Him. It doesn't see the invitations of God around us. And so I'm praying this morning that God would use His Word to grip you afresh with an invitation to behold Him, the God who is both holy and rich in love and in faithfulness. So if you're physically able in honor of the reading of God's Word, please stand with me. We're going to begin our reading in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, and we're going to read through verse 9 of chapter 3. Exodus 2, 23, this is the Word of the Lord. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who sees your people in the midst of all of our affliction, in the midst of our great need, that you are not far off, that you are rich with compassion, and you are rich in holiness and in righteousness. I pray that we would see you as both and that you would glorify Jesus in our eyes today. Fill us with reverential awe and worship and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I want you to think about where we now are in the story from where we left off last week. So David preached to us from Exodus chapter 2. We saw Moses believing that God had appointed him to deliver his people, but not the way he went about it. He killed a man and then had to flee from Pharaoh's wrath. And we are now picking up 40 years later. He has been a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. So if you're keeping track of Moses' life, you have 40 years as the son of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt. And now he's doubled that same span of time that has, has passed since last week, a whole 40 years that he has been a shepherd in the wilderness. And just as an aside, I want you to consider how long God must sift you and how he is in the hardships and the sufferings of your life. Remember, shepherds were despised in Egypt where Moses grew up. This was a, a deep humbling from God, but also preparation because Moses would be the shepherd of a nation. And so God was preparing him for his calling. And he was in a, in a sense, a 40-year-long internship of sorts where God was sifting him and teaching him. And now was this time where everything was coming to a head. All the suffering of Egypt, all of God's appointment of Moses, and you have this language of God saw it and God knew and God is about to act. And he starts by calling Moses. But what we're going to see this morning and where we're going to focus is not on Moses himself. See, even Moses' calling is not mainly about Moses, just as your life is not mainly about you. I want to glory with you this morning in three truths that we learn about God from this text and then see how these strands of what we see of God really bind together in the person and work of Jesus Christ and how we see it fully manifested in what 
God has sent Jesus to do for us. So from our few verses in chapter 2, I want to begin with looking with you at the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. Remember that these people that are in bondage are God's chosen people. These are the offspring of Abraham, the people to whom belong the covenants and the promises of God. And God had set them apart for himself. And it's these people that are groaning and crying out to God for help. And you need to know, I think some of you specifically in the seasons that you're in, that God will often bring us to a place where our circumstances bring our hearts into alignment with the truth that we are poor and needy. When our lives are full of comfort and ease, when we get what we're praying for very quickly, then we are so prone to unbelief. We're prone to that vacuum of self-orientation. But God will bring us to a place where we are driven to our knees in desperate prayer so that our hearts align with the truth that we are poor and needy and in need of the breakthrough and the salvation of God. I've seen it this week, whether it's in prayer requests for the Lord's provision in a way, and, it, and the process is stalled out and it takes time, and he brings you to the place right to the point of where your faith would break, and then he comes through. And he does it again and again, bringing us to a place where we will call out to him in our desperation. And it was the faithfulness of God that moved Israel to call out to him, to point their groaning and their cries for help to the God who is faithful. And his ear was not deaf to their cries. But listen to the reasons why our text says that God came through to help them. In chapter 2, verse 24, it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In chapter 3, verse 6, when he's revealing himself to Moses, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Because when a covenant is exchanged, you exchange names, and God breathed his name into the, the name of Abraham, and Abram became Abraham, and God became the God of Abraham. This is all covenant language. When he's revealing himself to Moses, he's saying, I am the God who keeps covenant. In the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of, listen to this, my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. So this is God remembering his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And remembering his covenant is a consistent theme throughout Exodus and throughout all the scriptures of why God does what he does. Now, uh, you can see this again in, in chapter 6, verse 5. God gives a reason again. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And so you may remember, we, we need to remember, we need to know what it means to live in covenant with God. This idea of covenant is God making a solemn binding promise where he invites his people to live in relationship with him that is based on this oath, this 
promise where he makes or cuts the covenant and he keeps or fulfills the, he always keeps or fulfills his obligations to the covenant. But we see that in the giving of the law and in the promise with Abraham, God calls his people into obeying his law, obeying his commands as the obligation of the covenant. And we fail to keep our obligations. But the truth about God being a God who makes and keeps covenant is seen throughout the scriptures, whether it's in Genesis 3 or with Noah or with Abraham, right on through to the time of Christ where he cuts covenant and he, he brings his people into covenant relationship with him that is built on his promises. And so God is highlighting in our text that he is being faithful to his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Specifically, he has the promise of giving them the promised land in view. And they have been in bondage in a land of slavery. And that's why in Psalm 105, this Exodus Psalm, when they're singing about God's faithfulness and God remembering his covenant, he points specifically to God remembering the promise of the land that he gave to Abraham, that he would multiply his offspring and bring them into the promised land. And we know that Abraham and his offspring were looking ahead to the heavenly land, the city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And so this story is full of echoes and shadows of God bringing us out of the land of slavery into the promised land of his rest. And God says all of his acting for his people, all of his coming down to deliver his people is based on him keeping his promise and his covenant that he made in love to his people. We go to this passage often to talk about God calling his people to himself. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 through 8. This is God describing why he has done what he has done for his people and for you. God says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So he's saying, what I want you to know about this. I have set you apart for myself, and it wasn't because of anything that you had in you that I set my love on you. It was because I loved you and I made a promise, and I will be faithful to my promise. In God's covenant-keeping love, he binds up his promises to you with his own character so that to go back on his promise would, to be, would be to cease to be God himself. He has wrapped up 
all of his promises and his own faithfulness with your own security in his love. That's what it means to be in covenant with God. He makes a promise, and there is this immense security in his love where he doesn't just say, I love you. He acts and cuts a covenant and brings you into this relationship to say, this, secure, this is secure in my love. And so this is what the marriage covenant is meant to portray, that in love you cut a covenant, and it's not just the feelings of love that keep the relationship, but the covenant holds through seasons of bliss and through seasons of hardship. It is the promise that is made that holds the marriage together. It's why we have church membership and we call it a covenant because it is reflective of us being brought into covenant relationship with God together. And we have promised to each other to live before God as the church and to fulfill what God's word calls us to as a church. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus together. We enter into covenant to say, I promise I will do and be this for you. And you will do and be this for me as we follow God together. So there is no greater gift than to be in covenant with God. Him swearing by himself to bless his people, to be their God and for us to be his people. And it is all of grace. You can see throughout the scriptures, God says, I will not be false to my covenant. I won't be false to my faithfulness. Once he makes a promise, he will not turn back. And so he is coming to them in the midst of their affliction in remembrance of his covenant with Abraham because he's faithful. And when he, God says in remembrance of his covenant, it's not like God forgot them for 400 years. He's, when he remembers his covenant, it is him calling to mind his promises for the purposes of acting in his appointed time. So that is the first thing that we see in this text, that God is faithful to his covenant, and he is faithful to his people. Second, we see that God is holy. Look at chapter 3, in verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And we know the bush burnt and it wasn't consumed, and Moses turns aside to see it, and God calls to him out of the bush and Moses says, here I am. And what would you expect the very first thing for God to say? If he's coming down, he's coming to deliver his people, he's coming to rescue them. And we know that this is God himself speaking to Moses out of the bush. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the bush. But whenever we see the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, it is this pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jude says that it was Jesus who led his people out of slavery and who led them through the wilderness. And so here is the pre-incarnate word of God appearing to Moses in a flame of fire. Moses turns aside to see this wonder and this glory. Now, it's important for you to see that God speaks to him after Moses turns aside. That's the specific language of the text. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. That's why we started where we did this morning, because how many times has God put in your path, even this week, a burning bush of sorts, a, a place where he has called to you 
to reveal himself to you, and you've gone right past. The, on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus is unfolding the scriptures to his disciples, and their hearts are burning within him, them as he reveals himself to them, he makes and acts like he's going to go further. And when they plead with him and say, please come stay with us, then only after that he opens their eyes and they see him as he truly is. And they glory and they wonder. God has said to us that we will seek him and find him when we seek for him with all of our hearts. And so it's when Moses turns aside and actually acts on the curiosity and the wonder of going to look at this bush that God calls out to him. But what he says is surprising. If you allow your familiarity with this story to give way to wonder, you just imagine, what do you think that God would say if he's just said, I am rich with compassion on these people. I see them. I hear them. I, I've come down to deliver them. And Moses hears God calling to him. So he starts walking his way towards the bush. And the very first thing out of God's mouth is, do not come near. Because if he did, he would die. This is the God who is holy. And Moses like all people, had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He was a profane man, and God is holy. And he must be regarded by, as holy by those who would come near to him. A fire is a, is a fit picture of the holiness of God. I, I think all of us probably have some kind of story where you didn't regard fire as holy as you ought to have and you got burned. Or what parent doesn't know being super uptight with their kids around an open flame? Because fire will unapologetically consume what is not fire. And that is the picture that God gives us of his own holiness. His eyes are too pure to look upon and approve of evil. He does not sweep sin under some rug. His love is not such that he can set aside his holiness and his righteousness in order to merely accept and to forgive. So, what is Moses to do? God says, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. But he's not telling Moses to take off his sandals so that once he does, he can come near. He doesn't say, take off your sandals, and then after that, come closer. He says, in effect, don't take another step. The place where you are standing is holy ground, not because this was the future site of the giving of the law, and this was Mount Sinai, and there's somehow some holy site where there are places in the world that are holy, but God, by his own presence, had sanctified this place so that it was the ground, the dust of the earth that was holier than Moses. He says, take off your sandals. In the ancient Near East, this was like taking off your hat. But God is saying, look, you, the places where you have been, the life that you have lived, unworthy to be here. You take off your sandals and you get on your face before a holy God. God's holiness consumes 
what is unholy like straw. And so he warns Moses not to come any closer. And then he reveals himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses is terrified to even look at God. This is what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 is he's recounting the story and he's preaching before the Sanhedrin. He said, Moses did not dare to look at God. Now, this wasn't even just by virtue of Moses' sinfulness, but he, he senses that and he feels that in the presence of the Almighty. But God's word says that even sinless angels shield their eyes from looking on the one who is holy, holy, holy. And so that is in the forefront of Moses' calling is that the God who is coming to deliver his people is holy. Do not come near. We also see that God is compassionate. So you look at the end of chapter 2 in verse 24. Look at all the language. I'm going to read these last two verses of chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, verse 7 through Nine, I want you to hear this compassionate language of the God who sees and loves and hears his people. It says, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now there is a ridiculous notion, but very popular out in the world and people who are skeptics of God's word that would say things like the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and vengeful and Jesus is compassionate and kind. And we have to do all of this gymnastics with the text to try to reconcile the two, but they don't read. They're blind to the revelation of a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and who is holy and who has from all of eternity, been who he is without changing. So Jesus did not come and showcase a more merciful version of God as if he is somehow less holy than the Father. And the Father was not just acting in wrath and vengeance without being wildly compassionate and merciful and kind to a stiff-necked and obstinate and stubborn people. Look at the character of this God who is rich with compassion. Literally, he, he sees the affliction of his people. He sees their suffering and their hardship and their oppression. Now, this is true that God is a just God, and he looks at the oppression of all peoples, and his ears are open to their cry to make it right, to exercise justice for those who are oppressed. So he comes to the aid of the widow and the fatherless and the poor and the needy because he is a God of justice and he acts with righteousness and with vengeance against those who would oppress people. But there is a particular love that he has for his people, 
for the righteous cry, and the Lord hears him, and his ears are open to your cries. And so there are people in the room this morning that need to be reminded of the compassion of God, that he is not deaf to your groanings or to your cries for help, even though you're in a period where it seems like it's been 400 years of this. But he says, I hear you, and I see you right where you are. And he he knows. He says, chapter 2 ends with this, and God knew. And it is so comforting. You know, I I have a friend who we kind of joke around with him about this because it's kind of almost like a maternal thing where you'll just be pouring out your heart and telling what's going on, the griefs and the trials, and he'll just be like, I know, I know. And um, if he wasn't so genuine, it would almost seem patronizing. But there's actually a, a really comforting aspect about people not just listening to your plight, but actually knowing and understanding and seeing you. And then God doesn't just see you and understand you and stand far off from what you need. He acts to deliver you in his timing, but he acts for his people. So he says, I myself have come down to deliver them. I have come to set them free from their bondage and their slavery. I've, I've heard their cries and seen their bondage, and my heart has been warmed with compassion to bring them up out of the land of slavery and into the land that I promised them. And God wants them to remember his steadfast love and his faithfulness over and over and over again. So I was talking about this with David uh, this week, how in Deuteronomy chapter 26, God gives them commands for what they were to do every time they brought a sacrifice to him. And he says, I want you to recount this. My father was an Arab man. God called us out. And then we were enslaved in bondage for 400 years. But then we cried out to the Lord and God heard us and came to us. It's like what we do at the table where we remember, remember, remember. God wanted them to remember his steadfast love and his faithfulness, how they cried out to the Lord and he saw them. Don't forget it. They cried out to the Lord and he heard them and he acted to deliver them. This is what Isaiah recounts in chapter 63, verse 7 through 9. And he's, he's meditating on the Lord's goodness and his compassion to Israel. And he thinks about this moment. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So you need to see all of these together. God did not come to his people because they merited his compassion. 
He is rich in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he chose to love them, and he set his love on them and made a covenant with them. And so now he is acting on the basis of his promise, a God who is holy and who acts with compassion and love to deliver his people in the midst of their great need, not because of the tone of their groaning or because of the fervency of their prayers that they finally reached a spot where he was like, okay, that was the prayer I was looking for. God acts because he remembered his covenant. The prayers of his people came up to him and he acted in steadfast love and compassion. So the great question for us is if the holy God is to have compassion on his people, and dwell in their midst without consuming them, which is surely one of the things that the burning bush is meant to figure, right? Here is this bush where pure righteousness and holiness is dwelling, and it is not being consumed. That is what God would promise to do with his people, where he would come and be their God, and they would be his people, and he would dwell among them, and they would not be consumed in his holiness, how can that happen? How can the God who says, don't take one step closer, actually come and live among his people? And so the whole book of Exodus is going to begin to answer that with tokens and pictures that would all point ahead to how God would ultimately answer that question in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this God being faithful and God being holy and God being compassionate, all weave together to show us Christ who puts God on display. Jesus' incarnation is the ultimate coming down to deliver his people. And listen to these same three strands talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in his deliverance of us. So first, Christ came in remembrance of his covenant. John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, when his tongue is finally released and able to praise God for his goodness, for sending the Messiah to his people. He cries out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's come to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Jesus was coming in response to the covenant love of God, that God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so he came in remembrance of his covenant, just as he did with the children of Israel at the Exodus. Second, Christ came to bring us near to the God who is holy. Jesus, by his own holiness, made a way for the unholy and the profane to be brought near by his own righteousness. So, in John 1, verse 18, John writes, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. So Jesus came to show us exactly who the Father is and what he is like, and he revealed 
the God who is holy. Jesus lived with perfect love and with perfect righteousness and with perfect zeal for God's house. And the testimony about him from every single person, even the people that were condemning him, was, I find no guilt in him. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He was righteous and holy, never sinning, always living with perfect obedience to the Father. And the same awe and fear that marked Moses, marked Jesus' disciples when they saw who he was. Didn't matter if he said, cast your net on the other side of the boat after Peter says, Jesus, this is kind of what I do. And that's not going to work. We've been fishing all night. And then they haul in this catch. And what is Peter's response? He comes up to Jesus crying out, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Because he realizes he's in the presence of a God who is holy. Same thing happens with the disciples in the boat. When A great fear seizes them, bigger than any fear they had of the storm when they realized that God was in the boat with them. Jesus came to reveal the God who is holy and to bring us near to him. And last, Christ came in compassion for his people to deliver us. So he said of his own testimony that he came to seek and save that which is lost. But when he's preaching in a synagogue in Nazareth, he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61. And he says of himself, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops right before the text continues, in the day of vengeance of our God. And he closes the scroll up because the day of vengeance is to come. And he's not compromising God's holiness. He's not, he stops on a comma, not a period. The the, the verse says, to proclaim the years of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus stops on that comma and he rolls up the scroll because he comes with compassion and with mercy to make atonement for the sins of his people so that if anyone would repent and believe on him, they would be forgiven of their sins and cleansed of their unrighteousness and made holy and able to approach God in his holiness. And so he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim liberty, to come in compassion and in love so that people might be delivered from the just sentence of God's holiness. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we're reading through the Gospels as a family, and I think one of the things that stands out the most to us is how kind and compassionate Jesus is towards sinners and those who need. I mean, just he keeps bringing everyone who is in need of healing, everyone who is sick, all these demon-possessed, and there's this language over and over again that he just heals all of them. People are come to them in the midst of their need. And they're crying out, and he just, he delivers in kindness all of them. He allows himself to be interrupted, and he heals, and he delivers, and he sets free. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it gives the reason why he's healing every disease and every affliction. It says he saw the crowds, and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So 
Jesus comes to answer this great question that our text poses. How can a God who must say in protection of his people, do not come near, also come down in compassion to deliver his people and dwell with them as their God? How can you reconcile those two things? How can sinful man live in the presence of a holy God? And so what God did in sending Jesus for us is put forth Christ as a propitiation for our sins, where he took the penalty that our sins deserve and he imputes to us his own righteousness so that in pouring out our wrath on Christ, God might be just and by Jesus' perfect righteousness, God might also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that the sin that deserves the penalty of death is justly treated in the condemnation of the flesh of Christ. And he gets to lavish you with compassion and kindness in giving you what Jesus deserves for his own righteousness and bring you near. That is his goal, not just to forgive you, but to bring you near into his presence. It wasn't enough just to save you from a distance that Jesus came so that you might be brought near to God, so that you might hear instead of do not come near, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring you to God. And so what do we do with this? How do we live in light of the God who is faithful and holy and compassionate? These are quick. These are like a bow your head and listen to these kind of quick. God keeps covenant so you can trust him. He has promised, believer, to bring you into his glorious presence and to present you before his presence blameless with glory and with great joy. He has promised he will complete the work that he has started in you, that he will save you to the uttermost, that he will bring you into the promised land of his rest, and that he will not stop until you are completely like Christ in his presence him as your God, you as his children. And he has made that promise to you and he has never failed to keep one of his promises. And so you can trust him. You can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Two, he is holy, so fear and worship him only. We must rejoice in being brought near by this God. It is not that Jesus brought God down to us, but that he has brought us up and made us able to draw near to the throne of the God who is a consuming fire for mercy and help in time of need. It's a miracle. You want to talk about having your eyes open to wonder and to glory and not just go through life so familiar with glory that you don't, Stand amazed to see the sunrise again. It is incredible that the God who is holy, who must say, do not come near, now says to you, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. 
cast your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. You can come to him and to the throne room of his glory all by the righteousness and the merit of Christ who offered himself in your place. And last, he is compassionate. So rest in his love and be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. So we started with this, we live in this no man's land, not really crying out to God and trying to handle things on our own. And here I would exhort you to keep crying out to the Lord. Keep groaning to him. Keep praying to him. Don't grow weary in the good work of praying and seeking and asking and knocking because God is compassionate. You need to trust his heart. If he's saying no or not yet, he has a plan and a purpose for you. But he is rich with love and is faithful to you because of Christ. And he is holy, and so we must fear him and trust him and not judge him by our feeble sense and trust that he is compassionate. And so as he reveals himself to us, we need to press in to, to seek him. We need to turn aside when he calls out to us. When you read and you see something of his glory and his holiness, then you don't get up, but you linger and you turn aside and you pursue him and seek him with all of your heart, knowing that he is faithful and holy and rich in steadfast love and that he has brought all of these together in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you could draw near to him, the God who is holy and righteous and good. So let's pray. Father, Lord, would you forgive us for the low view that we so often have of you, where we live as though Christ has brought you down. We fail to approach you as the holy God that you are in the fear of you, living in awe of you, living with gratitude and wonder for what you have done for us in Christ. Please forgive us for neglecting to worship you for your faithfulness or forgetting your faithfulness, for acting or believing like you would be false to your covenant. Lord, would you forgive us for the times where we have not been merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Lord, please fill us with your own compassion. Make us like Jesus. Make us people who are tender to the cries of those in need. I pray that you would fill us with the heart of Christ and that you would make us holy as you are holy and loving and compassionate like you are full of compassion. Lord Jesus, thank you for making it possible for us to draw near to the God who is holy. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.